0: How are you guys doing this morning? Good, good. My My name is Matt Moore and I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. And I've been here for about three and a half years now and I've worked primarily with the university ministry, a little bit with student ministry, and now I'm working with adult ministry. And I can say that I absolutely love this church. This church is amazing. All of you are amazing. I cannot believe just the love that I feel from all of you, and especially not only you guys, but even the staff. I don't know if you guys get to hear about how the staff interacts, but it's so amazing that there's no competition between the staff. All of us genuinely love each other and genuinely care about each other, and so I feel so blessed to be a part of this church. And before I get started today, I want to share a little bit about my life, um, because I really feel like... The Lord has blessed me greatly in the last two and a half months or so. Um, Starting off about a month and a half ago, I finally got done and graduated from seminary. So I'm completely done. And some people have asked me, they're like, Matt, are you going to go back? Are you going to get your THM? Are you going to get your doctorate? And I say, never, never, ever, ever, ever. And... uh, I was, I was talking to my dad a couple weekends ago, and he reminded me that I've been in school for 24 years now. <laughs> what a waste of time. I mean, I've learned so much. I don't even remember half the things I've learned, but that is a really long time. I'm 28 years old now. So four years of my life, I haven't been in school. And I can honestly say now I love not being a student anymore. And so um, one other thing, amen, amen, all right. One other thing, uh, two and a half months ago, the Lord blessed my wife and I with our first baby, a baby boy named Seth. And here's a little picture of him. And that's my hand. That's how small he is. Or you're like, you have a really big hand. But, and then here's another picture of him. this is, uh, I think we were going to a wedding, so he was all decked out here. And that's my wife, Sarah. And I can honestly say that I love that woman more than anything. That woman means so much to me. And I remember when we, were, when, we were, um, when we were in the labor and delivery room, I remember it was like a few hours before he was born. Like, he was coming down the canal. He was coming, okay? And my wife was saying, I don't know if I'm going to love him. I don't know if I'm going to, like, care for him. I don't know if I'm going to be a good mother. Like, she's questioning everything. And so, like, I'm flipping out a little bit too, okay? And so... And I remember when as soon as he came out and started crying, my wife started crying. And ever since then, she has been so in love with this kid. She just bends over backwards for him. She's always getting up, always giving more of herself. When she wants to take a nap, she's always doing something to help this kid out. It's been amazing watching her just resonate with motherhood. Not only is she an amazing uh, mother, but she is an amazing wife, We've been married for two and a half years, and I can say that she is a perfect complement to me because I have a lot of problems. Like, for the last uh, four years, I've been at seminary. I don't know if you guys know this, but all of us that go to a master's seminary, we have to wear a tie okay and so I didn't even know how to tie a tie but before I went off to seminary my dad actually tied all my ties he pre-tied them for me so I could just throw them over my neck but a lot of times I'll show up at school and things won't match and so my wife started laying out my clothes for me to help me kind of coordinate a lot of people would think that I'm colorblind but I'm not she helped me dress even today so that this would actually look halfway decent but she makes sure that I go out the door that I have a have breakfast. She makes sure that I have lunch. When I get home, she makes sure that I have dinner for me. She's always trying to keep the house clean. She is an amazing woman. She is one of the biggest encouragers in my life. And here's another thing that I love about her. She always speaks the truth to me. And sometimes this gets rather annoying, but she always speaks the truth to me. She is never afraid to rebuke me. If I say something stupid, if I do something that is just totally dumb, she will always point out my fault. In love and gentleness, but she is a truth speaker to me. So with that in mind, I, I love my wife, so keep that in mind. But <laughs> where are you going? Okay, if I were to tell you, if I were to tell you that this last week I cheated on my wife, what would go through your mind? Now, let me say, it's a totally hypothetical situation. I have not cheated on my wife, but what would go through your mind right now if I said, I have been unfaithful to my wife, Sarah? Most likely, some of you would just be shocked. Some of you might even feel like just somebody just slugged you in the stomach. Some of you might be absolutely furious and angry. But think about this. If I told you I was unfaithful this last week to my wife, Sarah, you would be shocked. But if I told you that I have been unfaithful in my relationship with God, you would just kind of sit back and you'd say, Preacher, I understand. You know, you're a sinner too. It's so good to hear that you're a screw-up just like me. Why is it that we are appalled when we hear devoted Christians cheating on their spouses. But when we hear about devoted Christians not being devoted and being unfaithful to God, we just we don't think it's that big of a deal because we know we all struggle with it. You see this morning what I'm going to be talking about is intimacy with God. And I'm going to be making a lot of parallels to my relationship with my wife because you have to understand this, that both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God describes his relationship with us like a relationship between a husband and a wife. And here is what I want you to be processing today. We cannot expect intimacy with God. We cannot expect to be in tune with God if we are flirting with this world. If we are loving the people or the things in this world. So I want you to ask yourself, have you forsaken your first love? That's what I want you to be thinking about today as we go through this passage. And we're going to be in James, um, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And this morning, we're doing something a little different. I'm going to be preaching through verses 1 through 6. But we're actually going all the way to verse 10, verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. But the worship team is going to lead us through verses 7, 8, 9, and 10 today. They're going to be kind of preaching through music. And so before we get started, let me just pray for us that the Lord would just focus us, that we would be able to hear what he has to say through his word. Lord God, we just, we pray that your word would be understood, that it would be spoken clearly. We pray that you would shape our hearts and our minds. We just pray that we wouldn't ignore the conviction of your spirit, but we pray that we'd be shaped, challenged, and changed. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. I have to say that I absolutely love Out of all the books in the New Testament, I love the book of James. And this is why. Because James just throws it out there. He is so blunt. He says in chapter 1, you guys are hearers of the word and not doers. You just sit there and you hear the word, but you don't do anything about it. And then he says later in chapter 1, you claim to be religious. You put on this facade, this guise of godliness, but you don't care at all about the orphans. You don't care at all about the widows. And then he even gets more blunt. In chapter 2, he says, you claim to have faith. You say you have faith, but you have no works. And then he says, your faith is like a demon's. Think about that. Your faith is almost demonic. If you just claim to have faith, but you have no works, your faith is like a demon. It's absolutely worthless. And then he gets in here to chapter 4, and he says one of the most shocking statements. And if you don't have your Bibles, we have them printed in these sermon-based small groups. And I want you to look at verse 4, the first three words of the center paragraph, verse 4, you adulterous people. This is going to be the crux of the message today. You adulterous people, probably one of the most straightforward and blunt statements in all the book of James. So this is where we're headed, but let's start off and get into chapter 4. Starting at verse 1, and read with me, follow along. It says this What causes fights? And what causes quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So he starts off by recognizing a problem, a behavioral problem. Now, James is the pastor of these people, and it's very interesting because James was the pastor of these people when all these people were in Jerusalem, but now all these people were scattered all over the known world because of persecution. So he's writing this letter, and he's saying, I'm hearing that there's conflict. I'm hearing that there's fights among you. He asks a rhetorical question. He's pointing out an observation, and then he answers it. He says, look at the latter half of verse 1. Don't these fights, don't they come from your desires that are battle within you? So he says, all of this behavioral conflict, they come from a desire, a sinful desire that is at battle within you. And if you look back at chapter 3, we see what desires he's talking about. He's talking about these selfish ambitions, these bitter jealousies. He says, these selfish ambitions, this jealousy, is causing conflict. And so this morning, I want you to think about this. Are you in conflict with anybody, minor or major? Are you in conflict with your spouse? Are you in conflict with your in-laws? Is there problems in your relationship with your neighbors, with your employees, Because if there's conflict in those relationships around you, maybe even someone here in this room, it's most likely because of a sinful desire that resides in your heart. And so James is pointing out, he says, these behavioral problems, they're being manifested because of something that is wicked in your heart. And they're waging war in your heart. And then he goes on in verse 2 and he says, he sets up an example. He says, you want something. But you don't get it. You can't get your hands on it. So you kill and you covet. But you cannot have what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. So they weren't asking God for these desires. Yet some of them, look at verse 3. They did decide to ask God. Look at verse 3. When you ask God, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So he's saying you have these sinful passions at war within you and you're trying to get your hands on them, but you can't get your hands on them. So finally you decide to beg God, God, please give me these things that I want. And God sits there silently and doesn't say anything because he's not going to give it to them because they are asking to fulfill their sinful desires within. This is us. James is talking to the people 2,000 years ago, but this is us too. Do we not have conflicting passions in our heart? Do we not want so many things in this world? Think about all the things that you chase after. So many of our pursuits as believers are so similar to the pursuits of unbelievers. I remember when I was in college in the dorms, the guy that lived right next door to me He didn't know the Lord. Yet his lifestyle, his passions, his pursuits were identical to mine. Yet I knew the Lord and he didn't. And that was a huge wake-up call for me. Because shouldn't we be set apart? Shouldn't our lifestyle, shouldn't our behavior, shouldn't our mindset and our pursuits be completely different than in unbelievers? Because of the hope that we have in Christ. Should be completely different. But James is recognizing, he says, you have, you have one foot in the world, you're pursuing these passions while at the same time you're trying to mix God into it. You're asking God to fulfill your sinful passions. That's us, American Christians, even here in Simi Valley, even here at Cornerstone. We come to church, we claim to be religious so often, and we are a good amount of the time, but we are still pursuing more, more, more. We still want to get our hands on everything that we can get our hands on. So much of our life and our pursuits are identical to our neighbors who don't have the hope that we have. And what James is saying basically here is you can't do this. You can't have conflicting desires because guess what they're doing? You, these selfish ambitions, you don't think they're bothering anyone else, but guess what? They are causing all these conflicts that you have with one another. And then he goes on in verse 4 and he says this You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. You adulterous people. He just got done in verses 1 through 3, and he said this. He said, these sinful passions that are within you, they are causing problems on the horizontal level with people around you. And now he's saying, not only are these sinful passions causing problems with people around you, but they are causing problems in your relationship with God. He ups the ante. He says, if if you're fine with these sinful passions causing problems with others... Guess what? It's also hindering your relationship with God. You adulterous people. He labels them. He titles them. He says, this is who you are. And it's interesting. If you look in the original language, the term that's used is a feminine noun, okay? He's talking to both men and women, but he's labeling them all with a feminine noun, okay? You know, last week, how Francis, it was Father's Day, and so Francis said, men, act like men, right? Remember that? And so, you women, I kind of felt bad for you, but you kind of had to put yourself in the shoes of a man and try to feel like a man a little bit, okay? Well, today, I'm asking you guys to try to feel like a woman, okay? So try to put yourself in a woman's shoes, Because this will get kind of uncomfortable for a lot of you guys, because God describes himself in the Old Testament as our husband. So if God is our husband, what are we? We are his wife. So guys, put yourself in the shoes of a woman. In the Old Testament, Isaiah 54, he says, For the Lord your God, for your maker, is your husband. And then he says later in Jeremiah 31, he says, I made this covenant with you. I am your husband. And then even in the New Testament, things don't change. Because we as a church are described as what? The bride of Christ, right? And so think about this. He's saying, you adulterous people. You adulterous people. Because this, we to some extent have committed adultery against God, against our relationship with him. Because whether you know it or not, if you are a believer, you entered into like a marriage vow with God. So have you been faithful? Or have you been inconsistent? Have you betrayed your covenant that you made with God? When I marry people, the night before the ceremony, I have them read over their vows because a lot of times when they get on stage and they're standing there in front of everybody and they're looking at each other and the moment is finally there, they're not thinking about the vows that they've made, they're going to make to one another. So a lot of times I give them the vows the night before the ceremony so that they can kind of process through them and make sure that they mean those words that they're going to make to one another in front of all the witnesses and in front of God. And these are the vows that I made to my wife two and a half years ago. Matt, do you vow here that you will be true and loyal, patient in sickness, comforting in sorrow, forsaking all others, keeping yourself only unto her so long as you both shall live? Now, pretty standard, most likely your vows if you're married were similar to that. But what if I got in bed with my wife tonight, and we're laying there, turned off the light, and all of a sudden, I got up, turned on the light, and I said, honey, you know what? Um, I decided to amend our vows, okay? Because two and a half years ago, that was a really long time ago, and like, I was feeling it then, not really feeling it now, okay? What if I said that? And then what if I reached underneath the pillow and said, honey, I've been working on these vows. I I think you'll like them. And what if these were the new vows? Sarah, I vow here to be true and loyal to you only when my heart is in it. I will tolerate you in the midst of sickness. I will consider comforting you in sorrow. I will forsake all others unless someone else better comes along. (laughs) And I will keep myself only unto you so long as it feels right. What do you think she would do? Couch is real comfortable, isn't it? (laughs) She would say, you're absolutely ridiculous. You can't amend the vows. You can't change what we promise to one another. But that is what we do all the time with our relationship with the Lord. God says, I want your whole heart. I want all of you. I want your undivided attention. And that's not what we give him. You see, but some of you are thinking, but you know what? God is a God of grace. He's going to cover me in the shadow of his wings. He's going to love me. And so if I screw up, it's okay because he's a God of forgiveness. He's a God of grace and compassion and mercy. So I can screw up. It's okay. But that same reasoning, take that into my relationship with my wife. You know, honey, I screwed up. I cheated on you, but you're full of forgiveness, you're full of grace, I know that you're going to forgive me, so hey, let's just move on from this, let's just move past this. That would be absolutely ridiculous, that reasoning would be stupid, but why do we do that so often in our relationship with God? We trample on God's grace and we wipe our feet on his forgiveness so often, Yes, God is a God of grace. Yes, God is God of forgiveness, but that does not give us license to be unfaithful to him. And that's why he's saying in this passage, you adulterous people, because they had trampled on his grace and they had wiped their feet on his forgiveness. You guys know that guy in the Old Testament named Hosea? You guys ever heard of that guy Hosea? He was a prophet. I would love to be a prophet, but I would hate to be Hosea, okay? Because the very first time that God spoke to Hosea, think about this. You're a prophet. The very first time God speaks to you, imagine him saying this. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness. (laughs) Think about that. The very first time God speaks to you, he says, and some versions say this, go marry a whore, a prostitute. Some versions say this, and I do not want to offend anyone this morning, but I'm going to use the language that the Bible uses because they get very descriptive. So imagine God speaking to you the very first time. I want you to go and marry someone who is guaranteed to be unfaithful to you. Why? Because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from me. It goes on and it describes a little bit of Israel's adultery. It says, I will punish her, Israel, for the days she burned incense to the bales. She decked herself with rings. She prettied herself with jewelry. She went after her lovers and she forgot me. Think about that. So God called this prophet, Hosea, and he said, what I want you to do is I want you to go and marry an unfaithful woman. And she will be unfaithful to you, but I want you to be a living example of how it is with the type of relationship that I experience with Israel. How she chases after her lovers, how she decks herself out and tries to be all presentable and pleasing to other gods, and she forgets about me. And look at what God goes on and says. He describes Israel's love. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Think about this. A morning cloud, a morning cloud is just there in the morning. The dew that goes early away It's there for a moment. So many of us, our relationship with the Lord is so similar to this. Our love for him, it's there just in the morning when we wake up and when we pray. Or when we spend a little time in the scriptures. But the rest of the day, nothing about our mindset and nothing about our behavior looks like we're madly in love with God. And then he says here in verse five, therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have warned them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as light. And look what he says in verse six: For I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice; the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The two things that God desires is steadfast love and the knowledge of Him. Think about this. Put yourself in the shoes of being God's wife. Okay? Think about this. In my relationship with my wife, the one thing that I want to know above all else in me displaying my love to her is I want to know what she desires from me because if I know what she desires from me, then I will be able to display to her love. I will be able to show her the type of love that I have for her. And God is revealing his heart here. He says, I don't want sacrifice. I don't want you just to go through the motions. I don't want you just to do your quiet times, come to church, go to Bible study, do all these things. I want you to genuinely love me. That's the first commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And I want you to know me. Paul said, I consider everything else rubbish compared to simply the surpassing knowledge and the greatness of simply knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. The one thing he wanted to do above all else was simply know God. And that's what God is asking of us. That's what God was asking of Israel. That was what God was asking of the New Testament believers. He said, all I want you to do is I want your heart to be there. I want you to have wholehearted devotion to me. And I want you to know me. But look at what the passage says. It says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God. And then he repeats it. Anytime anything is repeated in the Bible, he's trying to emphasize something. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So he says, if you are friends with the world, the people in this world or the things in this world, you have set yourself opposed to God. And this word for friendship it's a word for love, this word phileo in the Greek. And it has this that idea of this lustful intimacy, this emotional attraction, this emotional love. So if you are passionate about the people, your spouse, your kids, if you are passionate about your job, if you are passionate about anything in this world more than Christ he says, you are setting yourself at odds with God. Yeah, the thing is, we kind of flirt with the world. You know what I'm saying? We, we flirt with the world. We, we pretend like we're pursuing God. And let me say, a lot of us are genuinely trying to pursue God. But at the same time, in that pursuit of God, we are not willing to give up our pursuit of the world. And so it's like we have something held onto our pants held onto our back and it's like a rubber band we can't quite reach onto to God and grab onto the things of God because we are still devoted to the things of this world and God's saying I don't do that I don't do that imagine going to your spouse and saying hey I am in love with you but I'm also in love with this other person is that okay no and it's not okay with God God wants wholehearted devotion. And he says if we don't have wholehearted devotion, we have set ourselves opposed to him. We are at odds with him. And why? Why are we at odds with him? Because look at verse five. What does verse five say? Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live within us envies intensely other versions say god jealously longs for the spirit that he made to live within us the reason why we cannot have a split devotion the reason why we can't pursue the things in this world and god is because our god by his very nature is a jealous god he's jealous Do you realize, I did a little search this last week, every time that God's jealousy is mentioned in the Bible, Old or New Testament, it most of the time is talking about how somebody has abused or ignored or overlooked his jealousy, and this is his response a lot of the times. His anger kindled, it burned like fire against them, it consumed them. He says, his great and avenging wrath, his blazing wrath, his fury, he vented. He was provoked to anger. You realize that God is a jealous God. Do you also realize that the only attribute of God in all of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, the only attribute that's listed of God is God's jealousy? Look at this. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Verse five. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. The only attribute of God that is listed is God's jealousy. Think about that. It's important and it's an attribute that we often overlook. We say, you know, it says in the Bible that God is love. So God's a loving God. Yes, he totally is. And the passage goes on to describe his love. But let's camp here for just a second. God is a jealous God. You know that in the Bible it says God is love. So God equates with love. God is love. But it also says that God is jealous. Look at this passage. Be careful, He's talking to Moses about going into the promised land. He says, be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going or they will be a snare. They will be a stumbling block to you. Verse 13, break down their altars, smash their sacred stones and cut down their Asherah poles. Verse 14, do not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is jealous, his name is jealous, is a jealous God. Verse 15 Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land, for when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, look at these four words they will invite you. You've heard the phrase, we are to be in the world, but we're not supposed to be of the world. Makes sense? We're supposed to be in the world. We're not supposed to necessarily separate ourselves from everything in the world. So we're supposed to be in the world, but not be defined, not to be of the world. Well, I would submit to you today that if you being in the world causes you to neglect or forsake your first love to God, get out of the world. Smash down those altars tear down those sacred places because God wants more than anything for our heart to be totally devoted to him and once it's totally devoted to him then try to get back in the world without being of the world because God does not need more Christians in this world whose heart devotion is split between things in this world and him between being passionate about his creation rather than him as the creator it makes no sense Paul continues the exact same theme. Look at 2 Corinthians 11. He says this, I feel a divine jealousy for you. For I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Now think about this. Look up here. Paul is saying, I was like the officiant. I was the minister of this wedding. And here you are, he's talking to the Corinthians, here you are, Corinthians. I was standing here with you, with Christ, And I married the two of you. I helped betroth the two of you together. And he's saying, now I feel divine jealousy. Why? Because, look at verse 3. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So this is what he's saying. He's saying, guess what? He said, at one time I presented you as a pure and undefiled virgin to Christ, but guess what? You have been unfaithful to your marriage vows. You have been led away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And how many of us are in that boat? How many of us, you you know that when you first came to know the Lord, You were so on fire. You were so passionate about him. But now you know that your heart is not totally in it. You are not totally devoted to the Lord anymore. So you might be thinking, it sounds like God's going to smite me. It sounds like God is just going to overwhelm me and he's going to be angry and furious because I have ignored his jealousy. I have ignored him wanting just exclusive, undivided attention. But here's the thing about our God. Not only along with his jealousy, he's a God filled with grace and we have to accept his grace without trampling on it. Because look at the next verse in verse six. But God gives us more grace. Amen? God gives us more grace. Despite us having these sinful desires within us that are causing all this conflict with people around us, despite these sinful desires within us that are causing conflict in our relationship with God, he says, I am still willing to give you more grace. And this is not just a New Testament thing. This is not just something that started happening when, God came, or when Jesus came on the scene. Look at how grace is explained in Hosea. He says, therefore, I am now going to allure her. He's talking about Israel. I will lead her into the desert. I will speak tenderly to her. That's God's grace. He's not talking about judgment. He's not talking about wrath. He says, I'm gonna allure her. I'm gonna lead her in the desert and speak tenderly to her. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And I will betroth you, I will be committed to you, to me, forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and in justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. God is a God of grace. Yes, God is a God of jealousy, and we have to keep that in mind, but God will also give us grace. But... There's one stipulation. There's one stipulation. Look at verse 6. But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. He stands against them. He resists them. He is at odds with those who are proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So this morning, if any of you are realizing that your devotion to God has been split, if you are realizing that you are not fully in love with God, it's because you are proud. I'm preaching this message to myself I've struggled even this last week with putting television programs, with putting sports, with putting my wife, my new son in front of my devotion to God. I'm right there too, but it's because I'm blinded by my pride and I don't see the beauty of God because I guarantee you that Anything in this world does not come close to the beauty of God. David says, the one thing I desire, the one thing I seek after is to dwell in the house of the Lord so that I can behold his beauty. And his beauty is not one of his attributes, it's the sum of his attributes. It's not like looking at a rainbow and saying, I love the purple, I love the red or the blue. It's stepping back and saying, that rainbow is amazing. All the colors of it make it amazing. If you humble yourself, God will show you who he is. He will show you his beauty. And I guarantee it, he will be more appealing and more desirous than anything this world has to offer because he is the creator and everything else is the creation. He is definitely more beautiful as the creator than anything in his creation. And so this passage goes on and it says, verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. And like I said before, I'm not going to preach it, but the worship team is going to preach it to some extent with the songs. But let me just give you a preview. This is what it says Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Verses 7 and 8, what are they talking about? Here's all the imperatives. The seven and eight talk about submitting yourself to God. Coming under the authority of God, saying, God, you're in control, I'm not in control. Then it goes on in the latter half of verse eight. Watch your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. The second part of this passage is cleansing yourself from sin. And then it says in verse 10, Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. So, this passage basically walks us through from being proud, from being prideful and arrogant, to a state of humility. Because when we are humble and we come before God, that's when He gives us more grace. When we recognize that we're screw ups, when we recognize that we're sinners. That's when he adds to us grace. That's when he will allure us and speak tenderly to us. And that's when we will feel his presence. We will feel his intimacy. So this morning, you're in one of two boats, I would say. You're either, you either know Jesus Christ or you don't. And if those of you that know Jesus Christ, you might be realizing this morning that I haven't been absolutely committed to him. I haven't been absolutely devoted to him. And what you need to do is humble yourself and allow God during this worship set to take you from a state of being proud to a state of being humble because even if you walk through those doors this morning feeling like you are not completely sold out and devoted to God, you can leave today different if you humble yourself. Some of you might not even know This idea of having intimacy, that might be weird. How can I have intimacy with God, someone who I cannot see? God wants to have that intimacy with you. He wants to have that relationship with you, but it starts with being humble, denying yourself, recognizing that you are not everything people say you are, and coming before God and saying, God, I need you. Everything else in this world, I've chased after it, and it does not match up. It is not worth it. So all of us, whether we know Christ or whether we don't, we need to humble ourselves. And we're going to do that with the next worship set. And the ushers are going to come forward. They're going to give off, uh, pass the offering plate. Commun- we're going to have communion. We don't have it up here today, but we're going to pass it. And let me just encourage you, if you um, don't know Christ yet, if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you don't have a relationship with him don't take communion, just let it pass because communion is a reminder of Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross and what he did for us, how he allowed us to have this relationship with him. So it's a reminder of our relationship with him. And if you don't know Christ, it's not reminding you of anything because you don't yet have a relationship with him. But if, whether you're a believer or not, if you wanna talk to somebody, um, if you want some encouragement, if you just need somebody to pray for you, we're gonna have people over here at the prayer room. So let me pray for us. Lord God, we just pray that today that you would help us to be humble. You would help us to uh, realize where we are falling short. Lord, give us the eyes to see our sin. Give us the eyes to see um, who you are. So Lord, we just pray that you prepare our hearts now. We pray that these songs would draw us into your presence and allow us to realize who you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.